Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of the mindrenewed.com, podcasting to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. Now just before we get going with this week's programme, let me say that the Mind Renewed is going to have a short summer break now. Not for very long, just a break of two weeks. So the next programme should be coming out in the week of the 10th to the 16th of August, when I hope to be speaking once again with Kevin Ryan, who came on earlier this year to talk about his book, Another 19. Next time, of course, we'll be speaking about something else, but related, of course. Uh, I won't tell you what that is at the moment, so keep tuned for that. I know what it is, but I'm not going to reveal that just for the moment. A week or so after that, I hope to welcome to the programme Dr. Stanley Monteith, uh, who is looking forward to joining us to discuss his life story and the events that shaped his ministry, as I call it, researching behind the curtain. And I can't be absolutely definite about the timing of that or indeed any other show after the next one, because as it's the summer vacation period, things can be rather unpredictable. And so I am anticipating a somewhat erratic schedule up until September. So please do forgive me if podcasts seem to come out at rather odd times or not quite in the order that you'd anticipated them. But um, when we get to September, I'm very much hoping that things will settle down again to the almost weekly pattern, which uh, I seem to have settled into. But just to put you into the picture, other guests coming up for the summer and into the autumn include author and researcher David Conn, who will be joining us to speak about Jim Jones, the leader of the so-called Disciples of Christ cult and the tragic Jonestown Massacre of 1978. Reverend Dr. Robert H. Bennett on his fascinating book, I Am Not Afraid, Demon Possession and Spiritual Warfare, which is based on his field research in Madagascar. The writer Kay Gordon Newfeld will be joining us again, this time to discuss the psychological impact of involvement in and escape from extreme new religious movements. The Swiss historian Dr. Daniela Ganser has agreed to speak to us about Operation Gladio. He's the author of NATO's Secret Armies. Patrick M. Wood, who recently joined us to talk about the Trilateral Commission, uh, hopes to be joining us to speak about the European Union. Dr. Tim Ball will be uh, joining us again, this time to talk about his new book, The Deliberate Corruption of Climate Science, and, all being well, the Christian philosopher and chair of philosophy at Concordia University, Wisconsin, Dr. Angus Manuga, should be joining us to discuss questions to do with human agency and freedom of the will. Now, as usual, any of those, of course, are subject to change, and no doubt other things, other interviews will intervene, but that's just the way things go, and uh, any Anyway, that's how things are shaping up at the moment. So as I say, there won't be a podcast next week or the following week, and I'm going to be spending time with my family and catching up on things. And uh, one of the things I'll be catching up on, I hope, will be the posting of transcripts, which I know that I am woefully behind on. And I, again, thank all of you who've uh, very kindly produced transcripts. And I know that I'm behind with that, and I'm going to try to uh, deal with that in the next couple of weeks or so. So thanks very much for listening to this introduction, and uh, I hope to be speaking to you in another couple of weeks from now. So we move now on to the interview with JP Holding. Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, podcasting to you from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK on this, the 24th of July 2014. And today I welcome to the programme Christian thinker and author J.P. Holding. James Patrick Holding is the president of Tecton Apologetics Ministries, which is a very active web-based ministry aimed at both commending and defending the historic Christian faith through reasoned argument. He has authored over 1,500 articles aimed at making Christianity understandable to the everyday consumer of ideas. He holds a master's degree in library science from Florida State University and is a contributing writer for the 
Christian Research Journal, which is one of the leading apologetics magazines in the US. He has also written several books, and I just have a few titles here, such as uh, Shattering the Christ Myth, Trusting the New Testament, The Impossible Faith, The Mormon Defenders, Defending the Resurrection, and a number of other books as well. And uh, most recently, Hitler's Christianity, at least I think it's his most recent book, perhaps uh, perhaps you'll correct me (laughs) about that in a minute, um, which is the subject actually we're going to be talking about today. So, uh, JP, thank you very much indeed for agreeing to join us on The Mind Renewed. Glad to be here, Julian. How are you? Well, as I was saying to you just before the interview, I'm okay, but I'm extremely hot because uh, we're not used to these... uh, elevated temperatures that we're suffering under at the moment and that may sound ridiculous to some people was it roughly about 30 degrees centigrade something like that i can hardly cope but uh, <laughs> how hot is it where you are uh in the terms of the fahrenheit scale it's probably in the mid 90s at this point well i'm very glad you are where you are and i'm where i am in that case <laughs> Um, now, the thing that prompted me to invite you onto the program was really actually that title of your ebook, Hitler's Christianity. Is is that your latest book, by the way? It is not. I've had about three or four since then, including one on the recent uh, lunacy about blood moons being a prophetic sign. Now, these days, I put out at least one ebook every month or other month. So <laughs> you'd be on there for quite a while listing them at this point. <laughs> Yeah, okay, fair enough. Um, yeah, and it'll be interesting to discuss with you the Blood Moon uh, business as well, actually. But I was going to say, I was particularly struck by this title, because it was obviously it's very provocative. And I thought, well, you know, maybe this book that you've written here would clear up various misunderstandings about what Hitler believed from a religious point of view. And now that I've read the book, I think it really does achieve that. I think it's a very good book, and I do recommend that people read it. And you give answers to those kinds of speculations which go along these lines. You know, was Hitler a Christian? Was he an atheist? Was he an occultist or a pagan? Or was he something else altogether? And your answer, which we're going to be getting into in a minute, is that he was, in fact, into something else altogether, which I think very few of us will have heard of. I certainly hadn't heard of it before reading your book. Before we explore all of that... Let's find out a little bit more about you, if that's okay. I introduced you a few minutes ago as a Christian apologist, so perhaps it would be a good place to start by asking you to explain not only a bit more about yourself, but what an apologist is, because apologetics often sounds like it's, you know, we're apologizing for things, you know, that sort of thing. It obviously doesn't mean that. So could you tell us a bit more about yourself and uh, how you got into apologetics and what apologetics is? All right, let's start with the definition of apologetics, and it comes from a Greek word, apologia, which was used to define a defense in a court of law. So essentially, you're, you're right about it being connected to saying you're sorry about something, because when you apologize to someone, in essence, you're defending yourself from their charges. Hmm. By the same token, Christian apologetics is a defense, but it is of the truth of Christianity. And of course, it's not limited to Christianity. We have apologists for Islam, and we have apologists for other various points of view. Yeah. In terms of how I got into it, I just have a personality that likes doing research. Uh, I'm actually very similar to uh, one of your great uh, citizens over there, C.S. Lewis. He was a famous Christian apologist, and he was also very interested in scholarship. And that's what my interest is, too, and that's why I also went into library science, because I love the challenge of finding an answer to a difficult question. And that just provided a good ministry for me to enter into. And when did you start uh, getting interested in that? Well, I've been interested in it uh, ever since I was uh, about 25 years ago, when I was like in my late teens, early 20s. Hmm. That's at the same time I was deciding I wanted to get a degree in library science. It just gradually developed along with the career choice. Uh-huh. And have you always been a Christian? 
I have not. I was raised in a household that adhered to what is called the high faith. Uh, that's basically an offshoot of Islam that believes that the nine major religions of the world are basically the same and they just need to acknowledge it. And the only Christian I knew uh, throughout my early childhood was an uncle who was, uh, well, didn't really exemplify the best in Christian faith. Uh, I'd like to say that he wore a t-shirt that said, turn or burn, when he evangelized. <laughs> right, okay, yeah. So when you became a Christian, presumably you, you did actually have many questions about this new faith that you were embracing. Did those questions feed into your interest in apologetics, do you think? It's quite possible that if they fed into each other like a sort of a, a symbiotic relationship. Uh, and you're right, it was a very gradual thing. I can't even identify to this day uh, what some people would call a moment of decision, a moment of commitment. I, I just can't tell you when that happened. Mm. Why would you say apologetics is particularly important? But the answer today is much different than it may have been even 20 years ago or back in the 40s when Lewis was writing. In general, I think Lewis would have said it was just important to, you know, to know why you believe what you do, and that remains the case. Hmm. But today, apologetics has become particularly important because of the advent of information technology. When I went to uh, library school in the early 90s, uh, no one knew what Google was, and the sort of databases that would evolve into something like Google were only being used by private companies. Today, of course, you can go into any public library or even in your own home, and you have a window opened onto all sorts of information as well as misinformation. And misinformation tends to spread faster than information does. But that makes apologetics particularly important today because you have the needed preparation to be ready to face all kinds of misinformation. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so you've written this book, Hitler's Christianity, and I guess my first question about this has got to be, why did you write such a book? I mean, the first thing is, you know, why did you write it? I mean, you're a Christian apologist, so why are you doing such a book? And the second thing is, why do you think this was an important issue to pursue at all? Because, you know, I think most people would think, well, Hitler was obviously not a Christian, so it doesn't really need answering. So why did you do it, and why did you think it was an important issue? But whenever I do projects, for the most part, they are driven by what I re receive requests about. And I have received over the years many requests about the uh, religious beliefs of Hitler. And at the same time, that's because, and this answers your second question, there are so many sources out there, especially online, that claim that he was a Christian. You know, it just came time for me to be able to do that. And I've always had an interest in you know, the earlier history, including World War II history. And so it was just a good time to do it. All these necessary circumstances came together, and I was able to get all the sources I needed within a certain period of time. That's it. It was just basically demand-driven. Right. Okay. And uh, in your book, you've got a quote from, I think it's some internet forum that you've uh, dragged up from somewhere, and you just give it as an example of the kind of thing that's out there on the net, and I'll just quote it. This murderous, genocidal psychopath, one of the most evil men in history, dot, 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 was a devout Christian. Deal with it. <laughs> now, how prevalent would you say is that idea out there on the net? Uh, in terms of absolute numbers, it's not particularly prevalent, but uh, yeah. there's sufficient numbers of people promoting this idea that you're going to run across it very easily. If, you, if anyone's searching for information on Adolf Hitler and put in the term Christian as well, they're going to run across this stuff. There's no question about that. And obviously it's very difficult asking about motivations, but what do you think, what would you guess at the motivations for people making those kinds of claims? Oh, I, I couldn't begin to guess. I know many of them are atheists who despise Christianity. Why they do, as many of them were former Christians themselves, and maybe they're working out some difficulty with their former life. But honestly, I, I don't 
I don't care what their motivations are. No. Okay. Um, when they make these statements that he was a Christian, do they tend to define what they mean by Christian? Uh, once in a while they will. Uh, they'll throw in a few things like, well, he believed Jesus was the Son of God, or uh, he went to church, or, or whatever. It'll be very basic stuff. Um, they certainly do not get into anything like, uh, did he have an orthodox view of the Trinity, or did he follow the teachings of Jesus, each one of them, or what have you. It, they'll do very little serious research. Uh, most of the time, what you'll find is just a collection of quotations where he mentions God or Jesus in some positive way. Yeah, actually, that really does bring me on to the next question I wanted to ask you about your method, because you're very careful about how you deal with the kinds of things that Hitler actually said in his speeches and his writings and some of the things that he's reported to have said in his conversations. In fact, you spend not very much time looking at that kind of thing. I think you spend a lot more time looking at the cultural context in which Hitler lived and he, in which he operated. And uh, I suppose some people might think that's a bit odd. You know, why not just people might say, why don't you just look at what he said? That's the most important thing. So why did you approach it that way? Well, no one, first of all, disputes that Hitler mentioned God and Jesus, so there wasn't any need to you know, go in depth, did he mention them? Hmm. But the main reason why I looked at the context is because the example I use is of a Muslim. You know, a Muslim may use some of the same words that a Christian uses, such as God or Providence or Heaven, or even Jesus, but it's pretty obvious that they don't mean the same thing that a Christian does when they use that single word. Uh, single words are insufficient to define a context, especially as a concept gets more complex. You can't just look at the words Hitler said and get their full meaning. That's not possible. Mm. And that applies to language in general as well. But it's very deceptive, isn't it? Because I'm just bringing up an example from your book. You have, uh, I think it's a speech, is it, that he gave in 1922. I'll just quote it because it's full of Christian terminology. He says, My feelings as a Christian point me to my Lord and Savior as a fighter. As a Christian, I have no duty to allow myself to be cheated, but I have the duty to be a fighter for truth and justice. And if there is anything which could demonstrate that we are acting rightly, it is the distress that daily grows. For as a Christian, I also have a duty to my own people. So it's absolutely packed with connotations, at least, to Christianity. So I can well understand why people would think that, yes, he clearly is a Christian. It's not just he's using one word, he's using lots of them. Sure. And if you look at a surface appearance, you might well get that impression, but that's precisely the point. You can't just stop with surface appearances. It makes a big difference whether that came out of the mouth of Adolf Hitler or Billy Graham. Sure. Okay, so let's turn to the main question then, and there are various options as to what Hitler actually might have been, so we'll keep in on the shelf, as it were, the possibility that he might have been a Christian, but I'm going to ask you a few things first. So... Could we perhaps call him an atheist? Quite a popular view that, yes, he claimed to be a Christian, but he was clearly an atheist. All his actions seem to suggest that he had no faith in God, as most people understand God to be. Do you think that's true? Would you agree with that kind of view? No, I would not. And uh, I think it was Ian Kershaw who made the point that there's no reason to not take some of his uh, professions at face value, that he believed in a God of some kind. Some are content to say that, well, he was just playing to the crowd that believed in Christianity, hmm. or he just you know, appealed to the German sense of God existing. That's a very common argument, but I, I don't see any reason to believe that. I mean, I would say that uh, he was pretty much indifferent to the practice of religion, even in terms of what he did believe, but there's no reason to doubt that he did believe in something in theological terms. So is there any indication as to what kind of God 
he did in fact believe in? I mean, do you think he believed in a real creator and sustainer of the universe as a theist would classically believe in? He certainly would have believed in a God that was a creator of the universe, that is without doubt. I mean, he would have shared many of the basic traits of belief in God that are common to the major world religions of Judaism and Islam. That's certainly true. I, I have no reason to doubt he believed God was omnipotent, omniscient, and so on. But it's when you get down to some of the details of what else he believed about God that we uh, run into some differences. And that's where we get into the cult that we call positive Christianity, which I believe we can discuss. It's an absolutely fascinating uh, thing that you brought up, which, as I said said before, I'd not heard of before. But I want to just pursue this just slightly more, largely because of the guest called Mark Musser, Pastor Mark Musser, who wrote that book, Nazi Oaks. He was on last year, and he gave the impression and made quite a strong argument that Hitler did believe in God, in inverted commas, but that when he was saying that word, he meant something much fuzzier than um, what you've just laid out there, something more like nature with a capital N. I mean, in Mark Musser's view, it would be more of a kind of vague pantheism in which all the kinds of ideas that Hitler liked, he rolled into one, you know, things like progress and anti-Semitism and German superiority, social Darwinism, romanticism, all those sorts of things rolled into one. And that was nature with a capital N but that he would refer to that as God. I didn't find anything uh, in my research to indicate a pantheistic view as opposed to a more personal God view, but otherwise I would agree that it was certainly a more distorted view of God and it involved some of the other elements that you mentioned. So a a strange kind of hybrid God, indeed. Yes. Okay, so... um... He was not an atheist then in the normal sense of that word, certainly. Well, could there be some credence to the view that his god was a kind of occult reality? Was he actually a pagan in some way? I mean, this is, again, this is a very popular view. I've heard many people saying things like, you know, uh, over over the years that he was very much into the techniques of occult oratory. And he used occult hand signals when he was delivering these dramatic speeches. And I've heard it said that he had a very weird spiritual experience that led him possibly to being demonized and that he was very much into astrology as well, which led him to make some very foolish decisions in military strategy. And I was actually reminded of that one recently because I I saw, again, the film The Desert Fox. And a number of times it says that he made decisions based on astrology. Um, No doubt people remember that one. It's the one with James Mason playing Rommel. So you do acknowledge in the book that some of Hitler's followers were certainly into the occult, most notably Heinrich Himmler, head of the SS, but you do maintain that Hitler was not of that persuasion. So could you tell us why you think that Hitler was not interested in occultism? Well, there are a couple of reasons, and supported here by professional historians. More to the point, it is only the professional historians who say that he was not involved in the occult. Those who say he was involved in it are not credentialed historians and are not writers who can be taken seriously by scholars. We do have positive evidence that he disdained the occult. He made a couple of statements early on, and one of his childhood friend, Augustin Kuziak, made it quite clear, saying Hitler was absolutely skeptical of the occult. And Hitler himself derided Himmler for believing in occultism. That's the positive evidence we have as far as his attitude towards it. The other things you refer to, such as him being interested in astrology, these are things that all come from unreliable sources, and there's simply no reason to believe any of this, not from the sources that we do have available to us. Uh, Of course, I checked out multiple claims of his interest in the occult, and they just didn't pan out at all. So would you say that Hitler would rather have been 
regarded as a rationalist and that that was part of the reason why he was dismissive of the occult? I don't think he would have objected to being looked at that way. I, I think it's more like he just thought it was silly. He liked to read a lot of books in his younger days, and you know, he probably you know, read some, some of that material on the occult, but the only reason he read it was to confirm his view that it was nonsense. I just don't see... I just, he didn't make any more clear statements than that, but it's just clear he had no practice in it, and what little he said on it, he, he did not approve of it. Mm-hmm. Yes, I've heard people say that. That's right, that he was very widely read, um, although, as you say, in this very selective kind of way. Um, but he, he will have read occult literature, but uh, you're saying you don't think that had any influence on him? I don't think it had any influence in the sense that it made him interested in the occult. Mm. Uh, it might be as if you or I might pick up a book on the occult just in order to confirm to ourselves that it's bunk. I read all kinds of books from all kinds of people. I mean, I've got books on my shelf behind me by people who say Jesus didn't exist. <laughs> but I, if you looked at my library, you wouldn't know what I believed. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, good point. Yeah, indeed, that would be true of mine as well. Yes, I think it would, one would come out as a, a very strange-looking person indeed if you followed the indications of my library. Um, you do also mention in your book the, now I'm going to give it its German title here, the Thule Gesellschaft, the Thule Society, which was a German supremacist occult group based in Munich. But you say that there's no evidence at all that Hitler was ever a member of that group or ever attended its meetings. Now, now my source on that matter is a uh, historian from your side of the pond, uh, Nicholas Goodrich Clark, who uh, wrote a book on the Nazis and the occult. And it is his contention that Hitler himself did not attend any meetings, and that although some people who would later become figures in the Nazi party, such as uh, Rudolf Hess, you know, attended a few meetings, they were not officially members. Uh, the society itself did, apparently did not last very long, and it was only from 1920 to 1923. And according to Goodrich Clark, we have records that show who was there. Since this is Goodrich Clark's specialty, I would, I would tend to favor his perceptions of course, I'm open to any other ideas. I don't think it would change things too much for what I have to say if Hitler actually attended a meeting, because you could then say, well, it was for the same reason he read books, uh, in order to confirm, hey, this stuff is nonsense. But you do say that you feel other members, high-ranking members of the, of the Nazis, were not members of that group either. But I do note that Ian Kershaw, whose book you do actually recommend, says that there were some very high-ranking individuals who were members of that group, and he specifically includes Rudolf Hess and Alfred Rosenberg, Dietrich Eckhart. Each of those you maintain in the book were not involved with that organization, but uh, Ian Kershaw disagrees with you, so I'm just wondering if you're siding with one scholar rather than another in that on that point. I probably did when I did my research. I did that a year ago. I'd have to go back and see why did I choose one or the other. Mm. Uh, I think it may have had to do, well, certainly it had in part to do with that uh, Goodrick Clark did more depth research on the occult aspect. I don't. I would not necessarily find it a problem if Kershaw was correct over Goodrick Clark on that point. Uh, I don't think it would change that much. Sure. Okay. With certainly with regard to Hitler himself, because I think that uh, Kershaw agrees with you on that. But I just I just will note what Kershaw says here. This is in his book Hitler, eighteen eighty nine to nineteen thirty six, Hubris, page one three eight to one three nine. He says that the Tula Society, and this is this is his quote here, membership list reads like a who's who of early Nazi sympathisers and leading figures in Munich, which is quite a bold statement. There, he's actually giving the impression that he's 
researched the membership list and identifies many early Nazi sympathizers. Yes, yeah. Again, I have to go back and dig to see you know, how I compared it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, well, they're both still alive. We could get Goodrick Clark and uh, Kershaw on, and you could have them talk to each other. <laughs> That should be fun. That's, uh, yeah. Well, if they'd agree to come on, that's a, that's a wonderful idea, yeah. Or maybe put them in a box ring. That would be funny. <laughs> yeah, that certainly would. So, okay, let's pursue Hitler himself then, uh, rather than the possibility that uh, there were quite a few people within the party itself who were involved in the occult. Don't you think that it's uh, rather suspicious that he should choose the swastika to represent the Nazi party? I mean, he was using there a symbol that he presumably knew did have occult connotations, because it was used, I understand, by people like uh, Guido von List and Jörg Lanz von Liebenfels for their occult organisations. This is prior, obviously, to the Nazi party. So isn't it odd that he should use the swastika? Well, it's occult symbols, and this is interesting because you know I recently had a project where I dealt with someone who claimed that various symbols were an indication that the Catholic Church was evil. As a response to that, I've pointed out that there are American Indian tribes that use the swastika. There's a great picture I have of a Native American basketball team from like the 1910s or something like that. And they have swastikas on their shirts. And so you can show this picture to someone and say, what are those Nazis doing playing basketball? Hmm. So, yeah, the swastika has more than one connotation. It certainly had a different connotation in Native American society. Sure. Uh, in terms of Hitler himself, he made it quite clear in his biography what he thought the swastika symbolized. And I have no doubt he was aware of the occult connotation, but he said clearly, the swastika signified the mission allotted to us, the struggle for the victory of Aryan mankind, and at the same time, the triumph of the ideal of creative work, which is in itself and always will be anti-Semitic. Now, if we're going to take Hitler at his own word, as many people do when he's being quoted as saying he's a Christian, we might as well take him at his word here, right? Mm -hmm. But you're not taking him at his word when he says he's a Christian. But it seems to me that you are taking his word when he talks about the use of the swastika. Oh, sure, I'm being ironic here. You know? Okay. But, you know, you can, there's, there's no... There's, I can't find any reason to think that there's a hidden, a hidden meaning behind what he said in his biography about the swastika. And you have to combine that with the statements he made about the occult elsewhere. Yes. And once you do that, you come to a different conclusion. Okay, I take your reasoning there. I wouldn't say that it's... I don't see that it's watertight, I have to say, because if he knew that the swastika was used by these rather culturally close organizations, then he presumably would have known that it would have connoted to people within that culture some level of occult involvement. And I know that the swastika was used by other cultures in the past, but is it not one of the traits of theosophical kinds of organizations to take all sorts of influences from all over the world and try to unify them in a theosophical system? So things like um, Guido von List and Jörg Lanz von Liebenfeld systems might well have had these kind of eclectic use of symbols, but then they would have, within that Germanic culture, they would have owned those particular symbols. Then we find Hitler using such a symbol, and that has to be said is rather suspicious. Uh, it can be suspicious. Uh, that's fine. It's a good reason to investigate. But the question is, and this goes back into the study of symbols I made mm -hmm. for the other project I was talking about, is the swastika a much more broadly used symbol that the occultists applied a more narrow meaning to, or is it a broadly occult symbol that Hitler, that others took meaning away from? 
And the evidence that I found indicates that the first was the case. There were much broader uses of the swastika in German society at the time that did not necessarily uh, mm -hmm. include occultism. Okay, well that sounds like something which uh, people can continue to research because there seemed to be somewhat of an open question on that one. Uh, very fascinating question indeed. Um, what do you make of the claim that Hitler read a number of times Liebenfeld's magazine, Ostara? That would be an example of what I was talking about, where it's simply his wide reading. Um, he, hmm. he read just about anything he could get his hands on, and based, on again, on his statements, it's more likely he picked up a lot of that stuff in order to refute it rather than to believe in it. By the same token, some of that uh, strange material that he picked up, uh, you're talking about particularly about the magazine Ostara, it contained a lot of information on uh, some of the race theory that we might recognize as later associated with Nazism. He was very probably interested in that much more than the occult information that was in Ostara. Yeah, I mean, I noticed the similar kinds of things when I, uh, many years ago, I read uh, Rosicrucian material and uh, Theosophical material, and I can't quite remember which was in which, you know, but there were all sorts of things that I, I thought struck me as rather similar to Nazi thinking, like the Aryan superiority, races evolving at different rates with black people being called stragglers from an earlier stage of evolution, anti-Semitism, rejection of Christian doctrine, these things. I mean, I could see how that kind of thinking would be immediately appealing to Hitler. And the question then comes from that, would he not find that so appealing that he might actually have taken on board more of the theosophical kinds of ideas? Well, if he did, I could find no direct evidence of it. And there's a good analogy to this. Uh, there's a group of people out there who believe that Jesus did not exist and that his story was compiled from pagan myths. Uh, now, I know of people who say this who are atheists, and I know of some who say this who are theosophists or occultists in some way. And they will often use each other as sources. But the ones who are atheists would be very offended by the idea that because they use the same ideas, that they also agree with the occult ideas. And so you, know, you have to be cautious on saying, well, if he believes in the same thing as this person on point A, can he also believe on point B? Of course, it's possible, but you have to go outside of that to find out. And you're always, in your research, you're looking for positive evidence of some indication that he did in fact believe A, did in fact believe B, and you say you can find nowhere any evidence that he positively believed in such things, but you can find evidence that he was dismissive of such ideas. Yes. Yeah, the weight is on dismissive in that case. I mean, there was very little evidence either way, pro or con, but what little there was pointed towards dismissive. Um, before we leave the subject, I want to ask you just one more thing about a guy called Alfred Rosenberg, and he wrote this book that you talk about called Myth of the 20th Century. And you say that this was second only to Mein Kampf in popularity in Nazi Germany, and that Rosenberg was obviously pagan, and that at one point the Nazi party actually appointed this guy to lead the spiritual and ideological education of the party. So uh, that certainly suggests to me anyway that uh, there was a, a very high view of paganism within the party. Do you think that that's any indication that Hitler might have approved of it? Well, it's certainly an indication that he found it useful for the ideas to be around. Hmm. Uh, now, he had people in, his, in the Nazi party who believed in that, he had people who believed in the positive Christian heresy, which we'll talk about later on. Mm. What I think we see in that is something that was illustrated by the relationship he maintained among his triumvirate. Uh, that was uh, Goebbels, Goring, and Himmler. 
he liked it when they were fighting with each other, and he tried to encourage them to sort of uh, have a tension between them and to disagree with one another. And I think it probably served his purpose to have these conflicting parties, uh, occultists versus the positive Christians within the Nazi party, because, well, among other things, if they're fighting with each other, they're certainly not going to be fighting with him. Sort of a misdirection kind of tactic. Yeah, that's fascinating, actually, because that does actually stitch things together a bit. So there is the picture that there was actually quite a bit of influence of occultism within the party, but that Hitler was not interested in that, except, as you say, to use it as a tactic against other people within the party who didn't agree with that sort of thing. So that is a very coherent picture that you're building up there. Uh, They were, as you say, Himmler was the lead one. He was more of a, what we see as a traditional quack occultist, the kind who was going to use things like crystal balls and horoscopes and whatnot. Rosenberg would have been closer to what your other guests described in terms of a pantheist. Uh, that was more of his hmm. interest. And he he might not have appreciated being called an occultist uh, as such. He, he probably preferred to have been called a pagan. So would you say that Hitler was probably closer to Rosenberg than he would have been to Himmler in terms of belief? Although, of course, you have clarified that Hitler did believe in some sort of theistic god. But nevertheless, do you think he would have been closer to that view rather than Himmler's view? Yeah, if you're going to put them in a straight line, you'd you'd have to say that, yeah. Mm. That's a simplified picture, but yeah. Yeah, okay. That's what I do sometimes. I try to simplify things (laughs) because people won't have read the book, of course, as I've had that opportunity to do. So I want to turn to your main thesis, uh, which you brought up a number of times, this positive Christianity. So this is the idea that Hitler certainly wasn't a Christian in the normal sense of that word, the normative sense. Okay, somebody who believes in the teachings of Jesus and the apostles as they've come down to us, but rather he was somebody who was very much attracted to a cult. And perhaps we need to clarify straight away that, again, we're not talking about the occult here. We mean uh, a cult. I'm going to ask you what you mean by cult in a moment. And this cult was Christian in name, but it had beliefs that conflicted with historic Christianity. And this is what you've termed. Um, I don't this is not your term, is it? I think this is a term that you have borrowed from academia. Is it positive Christianity? Could you? Yes. Could you tell us what this positive Christianity was? And as I said before, could you tell us what you mean by the term cult? Well, let's start with the word cult, since that's going to be a necessary background to establish. And uh, you mentioned that I write for the Christian Research Journal, and they are one of the leading apologetics magazines here in the States. And one of their specialties, in fact, the founder, Walter Martin, wrote a book titled The Kingdom of the Cults. And I had an opportunity to discuss this issue with the uh, editor of the journal, Elliot Miller. And uh, by it, he says, yes, you're definitely talking about a cult when you talk about what Hitler believed and by the way we define it. Now, in social terms, a cult can refer to a religious group that is an offshoot or deviation from a major religious group, and it has some new or unusual belief that contradicts the beliefs of the parent group. And so we have Mormonism, we have the Jehovah's Witnesses, we have people like Jim Jones, or we have people like uh, David Korsh leading the Branch Davidians. And even, in fact, because this is a social science term, and this may shock some people, By this definition, Christianity in the first century was a cult of Judaism. So the word cult does not necessarily have a connotation of something that is false in itself, although it does connote something that in some way rejects or contradicts the beliefs of the parent group. But that's, as you say, a sociological use of the word cult, but you don't just mean it in that sense, you also mean it in a theological way as well. Could you explain that? In theological terms, we often use the word cult in apologetics ministry to refer to a movement that is specifically false. 
of Mormonism, for example, which is an example I like to use since I've written on that. Many Mormons will be offended by the use of the word cult because today, especially you know, in the states, that has a connotation of a false belief system and of some kind of deviancy, so something you know, that you shouldn't be involved in under any circumstances. I try to be careful and use the word only in its sociological connotation. I'm not trying, I don't want to you know, bias the outcome. Yes, it's quite an important point, actually. When I started this podcast, I did actually use the term cult as a category in order to categorize some of the interviews that I had. And I, I realized it wasn't very long, actually, before I realized that it sort of gave the impression that all the things we were talking about were the same kind of seriousness of deviation. And of course, that's not true at all. So I, I changed that to new religious movements, which seems to be the preferred term these days. Yes. So could you tell us then what this positive Christianity new religious movement was and what are its defining characteristics? Well, I defined out the three, uh, three major characteristics uh, that separated it from mainstream Christianity. And this is not to say these are exclusively uh, the differences, and there are certainly variations within its group, uh, within individual believers in the system. But uh, you can say that every member of the positive Christian uh, movement shared these particular three deviant beliefs I'm going to discuss. The first belief is that they believed in an extremely bowtherized Bible, I like to say. To put it another way, uh, you take your Bible in front of you, and you rip out 75 to 90 percent of it, and you will have their Bible. How much did you say? Can you say that percentage again? Between 75 and 90 percent, depending on individual preferences. Wow. So what were they cutting out? Well, first of all, the Old Testament. And, uh, of course, you know that's going to take care of a substantial portion of it right away there. That's why the number is so big to begin with. <laughs> right. I forget what exactly what percent the Old Testament is. Something like 70% or 80%? <laughs> something, yeah, something like that, yeah. Presumably they're cutting out the Old Testament because it's Jewish, in inverted commas. Precisely. That's, that's precisely why they got rid of it. Uh, in fact, some of them made statements to the effect, you know, this is a Jewish book, we don't need a Jewish book uh, as part of our Bible. <laughs> So why didn't they go and cut 100% out then? Uh, there were still a few things that they found useful. And you know, certainly like many of these religious movements, they want to keep the authority of Jesus as much as they can because people respect Jesus. Even if they are not Christians, mm. they respect Jesus. And so it's to their advantage to keep some part of it behind to maintain a semblance of continuity and authority. Uh, within the New Testament, certain things were pretty quickly rejected, like the book of James, uh, the Gospel of Matthew, which was the most Jewish of the four Gospels. After that, it was, you know, it was kind of a mixed bag. I mean, they, some of them wanted to reject Paul because they thought he was teaching a Jewish religion. Others wanted to keep him because they said, well, he was the apostle to the Gentiles. What would they do with the book of Hebrews? Presumably that would be gone. I didn't find anything in particular on Hebrews. I mean, the scholars I dealt with didn't always go through the Canaan and say, well, they took this and not that. I suspect the book of Hebrews got the axe pretty quickly based on what I've seen of what they did to the other books. Mm. So what they seem to be doing then, in a, in a way, is sort of mirroring the kind of thing that happened with Marcion way back. Yes. In fact, I use uh, Martian as a, as a parallel to what they did in terms of the actions. Now, they did not reject the same... Ex they did rejected the Old Testament like he did. That much they had in common. Uh, they rejected some of the Jewish books like Matthew. But Martian more is more sure about keeping Paul in his Canaan. Hmm. 
So you say that they wanted to keep Jesus, these positive Christians. Um, what do they actually do with him then? Because, I mean, it's very obvious these days with the, it's called the third quest, isn't it, in academic scholarship, is actually rediscovering the Jewishness of Jesus. So what do they do with Jesus? <laughs> yeah, that's kind of ironic about the third quest, of course. Yeah, they're, they're rediscovering Jewishness. Uh, the positive Christians were absolutely intent upon getting rid of mm. Jesus as a Jewish person. And that is the second major deviation I spoke about. They would turn Jesus into basically a member of the Aryan Nazi master race. Uh, they deny that he was Jewish, basically remaking them in his own image. It just seems incredible that they could have kept any of the New Testament to make that point. I mean, that <laughs> you know, the Jewish background to Jesus' life and actions is just there everywhere. So I, I, it's hard to imagine what kind of Bible they'd end up with, really. A very small one. Uh, they did have a group that did produce uh, a Bible for the positive Christian movement. Wow. Enough clipping was done to satisfy them, or you know, they'd do whatever it took to get to where they wanted to go. If there was a passage that was objectionable, they could say, well, it was interpolated later by evil Jewish scribes. Uh, they had a goal first, and they did what they could to get to it. Yeah. And you have a third category that you talk about, um, that they elevated and you'll have to explain what these terms mean. They elevated orthopraxy over orthodoxy. So what were they doing there? Why was that important to them? Yeah, let's start with the definitions of those words. Orthodoxy refers to right doctrine or belief. And most of us are familiar with that word for no other reason than because of the Orthodox Church. Orthopraxy is less often used, and that refers to right practice or right behavior. Uh, and this is really not surprising, given how much they cut out of the Bible. They had a very strong emphasis on orthopraxy or right practice, whereas orthodoxy was something they were almost entirely indifferent to. I have challenged critics to do this, and none of them come up with anything. I say, you find me someplace where one of these leading Nazis discusses you know, the atonement, discusses the Trinity, discusses any of these theological ideas in any kind of explanatory detail. I mean, not just brief mentions of, of the concept, but I mean, I mean, talk, talk about a systematic theology of any kind, and you won't find any. Yeah, that, that was with scholars as well. Presumably they had scholars in positive Christianity. They did have some, yeah. That was the apologetics group I referred to, and even they were significantly indifferent to theology of that sort. Or if they did discuss it, they might transform it into something uh, that supported their, their own views, like viewing the atonement in terms of, like, salvation for Germans, or you know, race salvation, or what have you. That's the only extent to which you will find that kind of thing explained. Yeah. So when did this positive Christianity start? Well, the roots of it go back uh, quite a long way, uh, even before the time when Hitler lived. The person who I cited as not a founder per se, but someone who is an ideological ancestor, was, uh, I, don't, I don't want to risk pronouncing the name incorrectly, Ignaz van Doldinger. Uh, he was a theologian in Munich, and he believed in a system in which he rejected the authority of the Catholic Church because he thought that it imposed on the freedom of the German citizen to be what he was meant to be. Of course, the assumption is that Germans had a superior spiritual uh, sense about them, and so they didn't need the Catholic Church telling them what to do. Now, this, again, is not positive Christianity as such, okay? Mm -hmm. But it did have a good part of what became positive Christianity because it was associated with a strong sense of German nationalism, this idea of German superiority. And that, in turn, was connected to anti-Semitism. Of course, if the Germans are considered superior, the Jews are, and everyone else are going to be considered inferior. 
and it had something of an emphasis on moral purity, which you can see is something of an ancestor to the idea of orthopraxy. And so you will see some of these ideas, the three ideas, in their like early stages in some of these people, well before you could speak of positive Christianity as any sort of movement. Do you recall when it actually became a formal movement? It, that's hard to say. I mean, I looked into that in part because the Christian Research Journal asked me about that. It was a grassroots kind of thing. I mean, you can't really, it's kind of, kind of like my conversion. You can't say one minute it was not there and the next minute it was. It was something that sort of flowed out of the grassroots and slowly came into being. You can't even identify any specific person as a leader in the movement. So it was more of a cultural trend, you would say, rather than... Well, it is a bit odd, isn't it? It's a cultural trend that itself was a kind of new religious movement, but not in the sense of identifiable leaders and buildings, presumably that were positive Christianity buildings, that sort of thing. That, that's correct. Yeah, that's correct. Now, they took over some congregations, but at the start, you couldn't go over here and say, well, here's the positive Christian church. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, w- welcome to the service this morning, yes, indeed. Well, so how how influential was this on the churches? Did it really change the character of German Christianity? It changed a good portion of it. Now, you can find some churches that were much more into it than others, okay? Hmm. You, this movement that was called the German Christians was perhaps the most influenced by it. They, you can find in their system of belief... All three of those elements I discussed, uh, the beliefs about Jesus not being Jewish, the emphasis on right behavior, and the Bible being cut down to a minimum. I like to say that German Christianity was positive Christianity for the masses. They would take over you know, certain churches, you know, the, most of the members would, would adhere to those ideas, and some of the scholars would adhere to that specific idea. Now, they were not the only ones who adhered to these deviant ideas. You know, there were some members of the Catholic Church who did too, but they were not considered formally part of the German Christian movement. So this was, they would actually self-identify as German Christians. This was a title that they would use, is that correct? That is correct. And you say in your book that, uh, at least in some of the more extreme examples, that they saw Hitler as the second coming, in some sense. They sang hymns to Hitler. They had a cross and a swastika together in various contexts. And you say that, I don't know how accurate these figures are, 10 to 15 million out of 65 million Germans were persuaded by this. How accurate is that figure? That's a rough estimate, of course. Now, no one took a census back then. Uh, These were estimates made by the scholars based on what information they had. It could have been less. It could have been more, you know. Of course, you know, it was not a democracy, and no one was interested in you know, taking a poll of anybody. <laughs> no, sure. Still, I mean, if the scholars are saying that, that's, you know, quite a proportion of the population seem to be influenced by this way of thinking. It's uh, obviously very significant. Yes, I wanted to just include this rather striking um, example of a children's verse that the kids were taught in uh, Köln. I guess this must be one of the most extreme examples of indoctrination that was going on, but it does seem to give a very clear indication of how this kind of extreme nationalism actually took over uh, religious thinking in some contexts anyway. So I'll just read what it said. Uh, Führer, mein Führer, bequeathed to me by the Lord, protect and preserve me as long as I live. Thou hast rescued Germany from deepest distress. I thank thee today for my 
daily bread. Abideth thou long with me, forsaketh me not. Führer, mein Führer, my faith and my light. Heil, mein Führer, thank thee for this bountiful meal, protector of youth and friend of the aged. I know thou hast cares, but worry not. I am with thee by day and by night. Lie thy head in my lap. Be assured, my Führer, that thou art great. Heil, mein Führer. That's an absolutely astonishing verse there. There are all sorts of religious connotations there that suggest that they were actually worshipping, were either worshipping him as Christ or worshipping him as God. Yeah, I mean, there's just nothing that can be said to describe that. It's it's just disturbing to think that children are being taught things like this uh, about Adolf Hitler. Uh, It it does give an insight into perhaps why it was so difficult to get the loyalty of the German people away from Hitler. This sort of thing was inculcated into them as children uh, in many cases, and even the adults were subjected to propaganda that encouraged them to be loyal to that extent. Mm -hmm. A number of times in the book you speak about this positive Christianity as a kind of restorationist movement, the idea being there that the positive Christians were making the claim that the original Christianity was lost and that what we know as Christianity was in fact a distortion and what they were doing was restoring the true revelation, which of course was a German nationalist Christianity. Would you classify them as a restorationist cult? Yeah, very much so. I mean, there are two things a group like that can do uh, in order to try to displace the main Christian movement. The one thing is to say, well, we have a new revelation that replaces your old one. The other one is to say, well, we have the original uh, revelation which was lost by the corrupt church early on. Of course, that latter technique is used by Mormons as well as by Jehovah's Witnesses. and They claim that they're restoring what was originally believed by the church long ago. And so, yeah, it's no surprise that the positive Christians Mm. would take that tactic. Yeah, so what they were doing, presumably, is they were saying, well, the original Jesus was actually this Aryan teacher walking around in Palestine, and the early church sort of Judaized that Jesus and brought in all these Jewish elements and created the New Testament as we know it. And now we've realized the original Jesus was actually Aryan, and uh, so we can strip away all these elements. Now, do you think that the intellectual climate of higher criticism of the Bible, uh, liberal theology at the time, which was central to German theological academia at the time, do you think that created this intellectual climate that made that kind of move possible? According to uh, scholarship I've read, yes, it did to a significant extent. Now, let's be clear, we are not saying that some of these higher critics like Rudolf Bultmann were in some sense Nazis or that they supported the movement. Absolutely not. In fact, Boltman was a very strong voice against Nazism in the time that he had there. What did happen is that this higher criticism served in many ways to undermine faith in Orthodox Christianity, in the Bible as a source. And so when you take away that foundation from many people, they're going to look for something else to take its place. Uh, And that was a vacuum that positive Christianity had the opportunity to step into. Mm. And in a way, I suppose, they were treading the same kind of pathway intellectually, or at least in this narrow sense anyway, as the kinds of uh, Lives of Jesus studies, which were very much German academia-based, the kind of thing that Albert Schweitzer talked about in his uh, A Quest for the Historical Jesus, where he was saying that many of these Lives of Jesus academics were sort of 
reinventing Jesus and painting Jesus as kind of mirror images of themselves so that Jesus would come out as a kind of enlightened German gentleman, <laughs> you know. Um, so, so were they sort of taking up that idea or that justification for what they were doing and saying, well, no, we're going to paint him as a mirror image of ourselves as an Aryan nationalist German supremacist? Well, it's certainly allowed for that idea. I mean, there's nothing new about, you know, remaking Jesus in your own image. I mean, I've, mm. I encounter people who do that online uh, at least once a month. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. But, it's, you know, it certainly was a, you know, there was, there was a precedent for doing that kind of thing before and, you know, and after, uh, certainly. Okay, so what evidence do we have that Hitler himself personally identified with this new religious movement? Now, Hitler didn't say a whole lot of things about the subject of his religious beliefs, but a few things we have uh, do indicate that he adhered to the positive Christian heresy. Uh, in terms of the Bible, uh, we have a statement by him indicating that one of the goals of his movement was purification of the Bible, get rid of anything that was not consistent with the spirit of the movement. Historians believe that here he is alluding to the Old Testament mainly, like let's get rid of the Old Testament because that is you know, not in coherence with the spirit of our movement. We can certainly say that he didn't think the Bible was you know, the Word of God. He said of the New Testament, it was full of contradictions. You know, he certainly did not respect it as anything like inerrant or infallible. And another occasion uh, he said that Jesus was crucified by the Jews, and quote, but Paul falsified his doctrine and undermined ancient Rome. So you can see a hint there of this idea that Christianity was distorted in some way and needed to be restored. That's his statements on the Bible. In terms of what he said about Jesus, there wasn't a whole lot, but there's one very telling statement in which he said, I can imagine Christ as nothing other than blonde and with blue eyes. The devil, however, has a Jewish grimace. Yeah, that, that says a lot indeed. Um, you have another quote from Hitler. I think it was in a private meeting, and uh, this is quite revealing as well. I'll just uh, say what he said. We are the first to exhume these teachings yes. uh, through us alone, and not until now do these teachings celebrate their resurrection. Mary and Magdalene stood at the empty tomb, for they were seeking the dead man. But we intend to raise the treasures of the living Christ. Now, that is actually rich with all sorts of Christian metaphor there, but a distortion, a, a misusing of Christian terms so that those metaphors can mean something different to fit uh, Hitler's ideas. Well, yeah, you can't get any more clear uh, what you said about this being a restorationist movement. Uh, this, this claim, hey, we're the ones who've got the goods, everyone else is wrong, and that's a pretty bold statement to make. Again, I've made comparisons to the Mormons, and obviously not in terms of ideology, but in terms of how the movement started. This is essentially the same as Joseph Smith. I mean, one of his early statements was, you know, I asked which church I should join, I was told none of them because all of them were wrong. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so what he's doing here when he talks about the resurrections he's taking something that is a fact of history and he's turning it into a metaphor although paul does actually use it metaphorically in the new testament but it starts off as a fact of history so that you can make a metaphor of it and he anyway so hitler uses it as a metaphor and makes it mean something different he actually makes it mean this restorationist movement itself yes yeah that's right he essentially turns that into a prophecy of his own movement coming before. And we intend to raise the treasures of the living Christ. So he seems to be there actually saying the Nazi party itself is somehow the, the bringer of this truth to the world. So the Nazi party itself, at least the, my reading of it there, is that it's displacing the church. Uh, yes, yeah, at least the church as it stood in, you know, in Germany at the time. 
You also have a very interesting quote from the Nazi party in 1920, and this actually mentions positive Christianity. Do you think this term is used actually identifying that movement. Let me just read it. We demand liberty for all religious denominations in the state, so far as they are not a danger to it, and do not militate against the morality and moral sense of the German race. The party as such stands for positive Christianity, but does not bind itself in the matter of creed to any particular confession, blah, blah, blah. Um, do you think positive Christianity there is being used as a, an identifier of that movement? It's being used as an identifier, yes. Now, whether you'd say it was a proper noun that deserved English capitals, that's open to question. You know, the quote, as it is often rendered, of course, capitalizes the C, but not the P. You can debate whether or not the P deserves to be capitalized. I don't think it's necessary. But you definitely had a movement that defined itself over and against the mainstream church in some way. Yeah, and it presumably in the German is the same word there that's used of the movement. Sure. Right. I have to ask you what you make of the fact that Hitler was a Catholic and that he continued his Catholic membership. Um, you know, I can use, again, I keep using drawing on Mormonism as a parallel. Uh, many in the Mormon Church will say that they will continue to say that they are Christians because they are saying that you know, we ours is the original movement. Of course, they will want to claim the original terminology for themselves as well. Now, it's quite possible uh, that. We don't know Hitler's exact thinking on this topic, okay? Some will say that he was simply remaining a part of the Catholic Church in order to appeal to the people as a whole. And I, I, would, I would think that does have some bearing on it. But he may also have thought that what he believed was truly not incompatible with Catholicism as he understood it. He may have thought, well, I'm, I can bring my truth to Catholicism and show them it's perfectly valid what I'm doing. Of course, one of his ideas is that he wanted to unify the Protestant and Catholic churches under one umbrella. And so that is another thing where that, that emphasis on orthopraxy was important and the getting rid of orthodoxy, because the chief difference between denominations mm -hmm. is often on points of orthodoxy or doctrine. And so by eliminating the doctrine, they could unify the churches without any concern that they would contradict each other. And so certainly that would play into this idea that he portrayed himself as a Catholic because he wanted to say, hey, well, look, we're, we're, we're all, we can just all get along. You know, We don't have to be separate. We can uh, join together. So he could go along to the services, he could sing the hymns, and he could take part in the Mass or whatever he wanted to do, and that would be orthopraxy. He would be showing himself to be a true Christian, but inside his own mind you are hypothesizing that he's thinking himself in these positive Christian ways. But to the outside world, to the German um, nation, then he's being looked upon as, a yes, a definitely a, a good Christian there. And then the whole of this is set up then, as you say, to be a, a sign of unification. He's this exemplar of unification of the whole of German Christianity. Is, is that, have I got the right picture there? Sure. And we, we have to add, and again, add, we have to add the point that he believed that the positive Christian system was a restoration. And so he would see himself as, well, you could say, as a sort of missionary to the Catholics, trying to bring the truth of this uh, restoration to them. Okay, so um, if we can pin down then that uh, Hitler was certainly not a Christian in the normal sense, I think that's pretty obvious. That seems to be intuitively the case, and you've given every reason to believe that that is in fact the case. But what about other Nazis of high rank that were kind of satellite figures around Hitler? Did you find any who were unambiguously Christian? Let me first express the point that there were limits to what I could do here. I had to find leading Nazi figures about whom a significant amount had been written. 
and of course his three leaders, Goring, Goebbels, and Himmler. There was plenty on those guys. Uh, once you got past those three, though, it was often hard to find any biographical information on certain people. Uh, with many of these people, I can talk about you may find one or two good biographies, and that's all you can get out of them. Certainly, you're not going to find any biographies of lower-ranking Nazi leaders. But I found, aside from his you know, lead three, I found about half a dozen others with enough information on them to where I could reach some conclusions. And what conclusions did you draw? In general, uh, Goebbels and Goering were both into the positive Christian movement. Uh, Himmler was into the occult. Mm. Adolf Eichmann, now he was a more of an independent uh, kind of figure. He believed generally in a sort of pantheism, but he didn't align himself with any formal religious movement. Uh, Reinhard Heydrich uh, was probably indifferent to all religion, seemed to have made fun of just about everything. He was very heavily anti-Christian. Joseph Mengele appears to have been an apostate from Christianity, but we don't know what he moved to after that. He didn't seem to have any interest in religion. Alfred Rosenberg, who we mentioned earlier, he was into paganism. And then Albert Speer, who uh, was the one Nazi who managed to get out of prison, he seems to have been an agnostic and not really interested in religion either. But am I right in saying that Speer later on did actually have some interest in Judaism? He did, and that was very interesting. After he was convicted and put in prison, he was reading books on theology, and he decided that Judaism was morally superior to other religions. But, of course, he didn't actually become uh, Jewish. Do you think there's a possibility that he was feeling some sense of guilt and led him in that direction? It's possible. I mean, from what I see in the biographies, uh, he, he was motivated in good part by his the role he had played in, in the Nazi regime. There's really no way to tell for sure. He was a very private individual after he was released from prison. And, you know, if you were in his position, would you want to talk to a whole lot of people? <laughs> Probably not. No, indeed. Um, one thing that often comes up in connection with the church and Nazism is the use of Romans chapter 13, verse 1. And this is where Paul is speaking about how Christians should obey the authorities. Um, now, this needs a lot of contextualization. I think there's a, a great deal of misunderstanding about this passage. I will just read it. Paul says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Now, that seems like an I'm not, I'm not employing a pun here, but uh, that seems like a godsend to the Nazi party to exploit that with respect to the churches, to make people feel that they must obey the Nazi party because, well, Paul says the Nazi party has been put there by God, so you have to do as you're told. To what extent did the Nazis exploit that particular passage? They exploited it very strongly, and this is a passage that is used in that way, uh, not, certainly not just by the Nazis, but by other people as well. I mean, I've run into uh, Christian believers who use that to say, well, we should always obey our governing authorities, even if they do something wrong. Mm. Yeah, the context of that passage doesn't permit such a blanket assessment. Paul was at a time when you know, things were relatively at peace with the government. They were not persecuting Christians at the time. Nero was in charge, but he still hadn't lost his marbles yet and was a relatively good ruler. And I believe, uh, I don't remember which scholar said it, but their idea was that if Paul had written that 10 years later, he would have added some qualifications. What he wrote there assumes the context of the current higher powers. Now, in terms of the uh, Nazi movement, Germany had a long tradition of thinking of this verse in that very way as something that established the authorities of the political powers. And so when the Nazis came to power, 
the automatic assumption was, well, we need to obey them. And although you know, they recognized the evil in the Nazi movement as well, and so you might find them at the one hand saying, well, we're going to fulfill our patriotic duty to this movement, to the Nazi government, but, you know, Lord, please get rid of them as soon as possible. <laughs> Right. Yeah, there's a strange uh, ambivalence there. But uh, so you say that the cultural mirror was such that church and state were were not really seen as separate in Germany. So the door was open to a group like the Nazis who might exploit this. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, we uh, we certainly in America are used to the idea well church and state are separate. And you know, mm. so if uh, the ACLU or the American Civil Liberties Union went to Nazi Germany, they'd have a lot of work to do on their, on their hands. <laughs> Uh, there was really no. There was a Catholic political party. Uh, I believe it was called the Center Party. But even today, you can see that reflected in modern Germany, in that one of their lead political parties is called the, I believe, the Christian Democratic Party. So, does that really explain then why? I mean, we, we, on the surface, we seem to have a kind of contradiction in that you've been painting the picture that you know uh, liberal scholarship in Germany had demoted the authority of scripture by sort of undercutting it with all kinds of rationalistic arguments, many of which don't hold any water today. But nevertheless, that's what was going on at the time. But nevertheless, the Nazis were able to exploit a scripture like this. And a lot of those same people whose grasp of the authority of scripture had been undermined, nevertheless, took this very seriously and thought, well, you know, this is what God is saying. There's a very strange kind of apparent contradiction there. But do you think that is clarified by this kind of melding of church and state that we've just been talking about? Well, certainly. I mean, certainly. I mean, people still needed the church around, and that's something Hitler recognized. They needed the church around for morale and also for, you know, performing certain ceremonies like marriage. It's not clear. Again, I've said with Paul that they, they were unsure what to do with him at times. They may have still accepted Romans 13.1 as valid uh, within their canon. But even if they didn't, by the time of the Nazi era, this whole idea of the government being you know, the supreme authority that you're supposed to obey would have been so ingrained mm. that you probably could have gotten rid of Romans 13.1 and it wouldn't have made any difference. I see, I get the picture. So this would be a kind of echo of what they already believed, but that echo would be very strong and they'd say, oh, well, it's in the Bible as well. That's the way it's working. Yes. Mm-hmm. Before we leave this, you said that some scholar who you didn't identify gave the impression that had Paul written, say, a couple of decades later, he might have said this in a different way, might have qualified it. But actually, within that passage itself, there is some qualification in there. At least it can be read that way, because in verse 3 of that same passage, he says, For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. Now, I don't know whether you agree with me, but there seems to be a kind of assumption there in what Paul is writing, that the authorities are carrying out, at least substantially, the will of God, which, to my view, means that there is a window there onto perhaps Paul agreeing with that scholar that you were talking about, and, uh, and that he would actually have written that differently two decades later. Sure. At the same time, we have the passage in Acts where Peter and John are told not to preach in Jesus' name, and they decide to disobey that order from the Jewish authorities. Mm. And their summary of the matter is we should obey God rather than man. I don't think anyone is going to argue that the believers in the Old Testament era would have disagreed with such a sentiment. (laughs) Certainly, that kind of sentiment would be taken for granted in Paul as well. Mm. 
Yes, that's quite an important point to make, because that I do hear that quite often brought up as a, a real difficulty, even for modern Christians. You know, should we always obey what our governments are doing, even when we can identify things that we think are quite wrong? And uh, again, I think we need to carefully contextualise it along the way that you've just been describing there, which Paul did himself, actually, if we read it very carefully. Yes. So you mentioned German Christianity that was not the only form of Christianity, we're talking sociologically here, uh, that was around at the time. You mentioned three forms, and the other two, were, of course, were German Catholicism and the Confessing Church. So could you say something about German Catholicism at the time? Because I understand that there was actually a rejection of the Nazis to start with. I mean, in 1931-ish, that sort of time, there was a rejection of them. But then within a couple of years, they had this Reichskonkordat. What, what was going on with that? That was a very difficult situation for them, and historically, uh, much earlier than the Nazi movement, the Catholic Church had undergone a sort of uh, social persecution at the hands of the German government, and they didn't want to see that happen again, and so they were trying to reach an agreement with the Nazi movement. Basically, it was a, well, let's keep our hands off each other kind of deal. And of course, that wasn't followed, but... Uh, because of their past experience, some would say they made a deal with the devil. As one scholar puts it, you know, our hindsight tells us they were playing with the devil, but from their point of view at the time, they weren't. And they were trying to, you know, save people's lives from their point of view. And really, you know, what, what, what can you do when you don't have the guns? Sure, and you don't know how history is actually going to turn out. Was it true that there were some what were called brown priests around in the Catholic Church prior to that? Yeah, I alluded to that uh, earlier on. There were a small number of priests. Uh, I think the number that was recognized was like, only a couple of hundred at most uh, that would have been very comfortable within what was called the German Christian movement. Uh, but, they, but they were very, very few in number. Mm-hmm. Um, how different was, was there any difference in attitude by the um, non-German Catholics? I mean, when we come to the 1933 Reichskonkordat, did the rest of the Catholic Church agree with what happened there? The rest of the Catholic Church, uh, well, so the, the Vatican certainly uh, generally approved of the idea, but they were looking at the same problem, like, what do we do about this? You know, if, if we reject these overtures, uh, we're going to end up with a bloodbath on our hands. And the Catholics were in the minority in Germany, and as noted, they'd been through this kind of thing before. So they were anxious to avoid whatever trouble they could have. Nevertheless, like in other countries, uh, you know, France and, and Holland and, and England, there were some voices speaking out against what the Nazis were doing. Of course, they were more free to speak out in those other nations. Yeah. Could you tell us something about the Confessing Church? Now, again, I think this is actually a, a title, is that right? The Confessing Church. This, I believe, came out of what was called the Pastors' Emergency League. Could you tell us something yeah. about that? Yeah. I mean, this is a movement within German Protestantism that was uh, standing against the Nazi party. And the initial group was called the Pastors Emergency League, and its main purpose was to fight against this idea that pastors of Jewish descent uh, were not equal to other Christians. So they were countering what German Christians would say. They wouldn't want converted Jews in the church. Hmm. And the Pastors Emergency League was fighting for having Jews in the church who were converted. From the Pastors Emergency League, uh, you, you had a, you know, a slow movement into what became called the Confessing Church. And that was a, a broader movement that included some major names uh, like Martin Niemöller. They became more politically involved. Some of the members even met with Hitler and you know, tried to work things out. But uh, in the end, uh, he turned against them as well. And uh, some of the members were imprisoned. Was Dietrich Bonhoeffer a member of that group as well? Uh, he was associated with it, yes. Mm-hmm. He, he was of the same persuasion that, that they were. 
So this is Martin Neumuller of that famous verse. Well, there are different versions of this verse, of course, because he used it a number of times, but I'm sure people will know, but let me just let me just uh, recall it here because uh, I have an example of it. First, they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. And every time you read it, the hairs on the back of my neck stand on end. You know, it's a very, very powerful mm-hmm. statement indeed. So this guy was one of the co-founders of the Pastors Emergency League. Yes, yes, and you know, these these were not perfect men. Uh, you know, they had their own flaws, and some of them even held to some beliefs against Jews that we you know, that we would find somewhat offensive. But mm-hmm. you could say that they were the leading uh, resistance against the Nazi movement uh, in terms of the Christian church. Uh-huh. And how big would you say this movement was? Uh, I don't think I had anything particular on the numbers. I know they had a few thousand pastors at, at most at one point as part of that league. They certainly were not uh, huge compared to the mm. total number of Protestants in Germany, which numbered in the tens of millions. So the at- amount of attention we give them today is certainly not in proportion with their numbers. Well, that's an important thing to point out because, uh, yes, we can get a very skewed sort of vision of this. And we've just been talking about the German Christian movement with millions of members. And here we have, as you're implying, just a, just a few thousand pastors involved with this. Is it right that Dietrich Bonhoeffer himself had uh, anti-Semitic views to start with, but that his views changed with the, the Kristallnacht? That's what I understand, yes. I mean, there's so much written about him, probably more than any other person who was part of that movement, and we can't really do justice to a full picture. But uh, the persecution of Jews, both in terms of what I mentioned earlier about the you know, rejecting people to be pastors if they were Jewish, and then the uh, Crystal Night attacks in 1938, these things did compel him to think through what he believed before. And uh, I think a particularly uh, notable thing that happened was when the Jewish synagogues were vandalized and burned, uh, he cautioned some of his uh, seminarians who said, you know, this is a judgment on the Jews, it's their fault, that's what's coming down on them. Uh, he said, well, you know, you guys could be next. He, he echoed what you said, that quote from Nemo, where he said, you better watch out, you could be next. Mm-hmm. And is it, you say in your book that he, before this change of mind, he held to what you call a two-kingdom view. What was that about? That was related to what we discussed earlier about Romans 13. It basically said the state is allowed to do whatever it wants as long as it doesn't step on the church and what they have to do. So that was taking seriously Hitler's promises to the church, presumably, that he wouldn't interfere with church life. Right, exactly. It was right in line with this two kingdoms belief. And what kind of things did Hitler promise the church? He promised pretty much that he would let them do what they wanted. It was kind of sneaky. He said, you will be given your just due. Well, now, what does that mean? <laughs> yes, indeed. That sounds uh, an amazingly up-to-date kind of remark, actually. <laughs> yeah, more than a few p- politicians over here have been making that pr- kind of promise lately. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, one thing that you say towards the end of the book that I think is very illuminating, really, is or the speculation, really, as to what Hitler would have done to the churches after the war. And you do give some indication that there's some evidence to suggest that he would have gone on and eradicated traditional Christianity after the war. Could you share with us some of that evidence? Um, Of course, like I said, they needed the church for the time being because the church was a source of morale and uh, they didn't want to just get rid of it outright. Uh, At the same time, they wanted to try and undermine it and 
that unification that I spoke about, uh, getting rid of doctrine, you might say they were trying to neutralize the church first if they could. And, of course, you're certainly not going to be able to kill off everyone who's a Christian. You don't get rid of just about your entire population if you do that. A good source uh, that was put out about this uh, by the Records Journal of Law and Religion, there are some documents by the Office of Strategic Services written in 1945 in which they looked at all the things that the Nazis did to uh, work against the church. And the sum of the matter is they tried to, you know, first of all, undermine the authority of the leaders as much as they could, maybe by accusing them of some scandal or by imprisoning them or insulting them. And they also tried to limit the church's activity to just a few narrow religious functions. To give you an example of what they might do, they would say to the Hitler youth, uh, we've got a meeting this Sunday. Uh, you, you, it's a mandatory meeting. You better show up. And then they'd schedule it exactly at the same time as the church meeting. And so what are you going to do? On the one hand, they're, they're not actually saying, well, you can't go to church, but they're making it so you can't go. Right. And if you're going to be a good Christian, then you're going to go along to the Nazi meeting. <laughs> exactly. You also, this is, a, it seems a rather a strange kind of reference, but you make a very good point in the book that um, the Jehovah's Witnesses are a kind of win window onto this and the way that they were treated. How does this help us to understand what Hitler might have done after the war? Well, the Jehovah's Witnesses were upset to the point that they would not give up their beliefs no matter what. And because they did stand up to the Nazi regime, something like, I think it was two-thirds of them at least suffered some kind of persecution, which would include death. Uh, now, there weren't that many of them in Germany at the time. I, I think this number was very, I forget what the exact number was, but it was very small. That gives you an example of what would have happened to anyone who stood against the Nazi movement or any church that stood against them. So here I have the number, uh, 30,000 Jehovah's Witnesses, 97% suffered persecution, and a third were killed. Now, of course, you're not going to be able to do that against you know, millions of German Protestants, but if you can narrow it down to only a certain number of people who are going to stand up against you while the rest are just going to cower in the corner, you're going to do what you can. And uh, you gave an example of something that happened in Norway that also is a window onto what might have happened. Right. Now, of course, the Nazis conquered Norway early on, and what they would do is uh, the state church there was undermined by putting pro-Nazi officials in charge of the key positions. And so it ended up that most, many of the Norwegian pastorate resigned. That's the end of that organization in terms of its authority. Well, if I may, the last thing that I'd like to ask you about is a kind of more general question, really, to do with uh, the New Testament and the claim that some people have that somehow Christianity bears some responsibility for what happened in Nazi Germany. And they would look at the New Testament and say, well, there are some examples of anti-Semitism there. So I want to ask you how you answer that kind of accusation. And I'm going to throw at you one of the most famous examples from Paul, this is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 14 to 16, which I will read. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things that the churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they might be saved. In this way, they will always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. As I say, that is seen by some people as an example there that the New Testament is actually speaking against Jews. How do you respond to that? Well, the first thing to consider is that culturally, this was a time when you could have what you call inter-Nicene warfare. Some could say, have said, in fact, this was one of the arguments that the Nazis made, 
The Old Testament is very anti-Semitic. Some of the Nazis were saying we should keep it around because it's so anti-Semitic. And Paul's language is no different than that. And you can find the same kind of language being used between two different parties of Jews, you know, they're using the same kind of accusations. It was a different kind of culture for them. It, they were not afraid to use words like that. In fact, uh, one, of the, one of the social aspects of this is that they would use words instead of fists. And if, you, if two parties were insulting each other like that and one of them threw a punch, people nearby would break it up and consider the guy who threw the punch the big loser because he couldn't control himself and use words to fight his wars. And so there's nothing particularly shocking about Paul using this kind of language. And would you say that the same kind of thing applies to another famous example? This is the Gospel of John. and I've just picked out an example from chapter 5, 16, verses 16 to 18, for anybody who wants to reference it. Um, so it says, So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the more to kill him, etc., etc. So again, people point to that and say, you know, this is anti-Semitic here in the New Testament. Weren't the Nazis just drawing upon that? Yeah, there is some of that internecine warfare, but another point is that the word used in there for Jews more properly is read Judeans. Now, one of the things people ask is, well, how can Jesus say things like this against the Jews when he is supposed to be a Jew himself? What you're seeing is a sort of internecine warfare between Judeans, people who live in the province of Judea, and Galileans, uh, people who lived in the province of Galilee, both by religious reckoning would be considered Jews uh, by our modern terminology. Mm. But one group was from a specific province and the other was from another specific province. And there was also a great deal of ideological difference between those who were in Galilee and those who were in Palestine. Uh, there were later accounts by uh, rabbinic writers saying, well, people in Galilee sure do hate the Torah. You know, they, they're a bunch of backwards redneck rubes, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. So it's a very, very different culture that uh, in our sort of politically correct age, we wouldn't use language in quite the same way. But then, of course, to expect that of a different culture, a different time, different place is quite unrealistic and uh, very unfair, actually. And so we do, as you're suggesting here, we need to read these things very carefully in their proper context. Now, there, we could go on forever. There are loads and loads of things that I could ask you about but I, we need to draw this to a close and I think the last thing that I would like to ask you to do if you could since we were bringing up the question of what it is that Hitler believed you know the title of your book Hitler's Christianity the question I'd like to ask lastly is if you could kind of sum up for us what would you say how would you characterize in a sentence or two what Hitler's Christianity actually was I would summarize it by saying it was a deviant movement that diverged from mainstream Christianity on some of the most important principles that define Christianity for what it is. Well, that draws us to the uh, end of our conversation here. It's been wonderful speaking to you, actually. I did enjoy the book. As we've already expressed in the conversation, there are areas that perhaps uh, require further research, but that's often the case, isn't it, with uh, an academic undertaking like this. It's a fascinating book. I do suggest that people go and, and get this. Is it? Uh, it's available as an e-book. Is that right from your website? Is it, I mean, there isn't any kind of hard version of it, is there? No, it's not hardback. It's an Amazon Kindle book. Uh, I don't have it featured on the front page right now because it's been not quite a year since I put it out, mm -hmm. but it should be pretty easy to find. Good. I mean, I can put links to that in the show notes, of course, anyway. Could you actually spell out the address of your website so people can find it easily? Yeah, the spelling would be T-E-K-T-O-N-I-C-S dot O-R-G, tectonics.org. 
And make sure you put in .org, because if you go to a .com, you'll get this engineering firm that builds bridges. And <laughs> right. they do not... They don't want to answer your questions about Jesus. Okay. And perhaps you don't want to answer questions about engineering. I don't know. No, no, not really. <laughs> Could you also just give some indication of what kind of resources people can find at your website? Because I said right at the beginning that you've got these 1,500 plus articles there. So there's so much more for people to find. What have you got there? Aside from the 1,500 or so articles, I have a number of the uh, books that I uh, put out. I also have some PowerPoint presentations, some lecture notes. I have bibliographies uh, that may be useful to people uh, who want to know what sort of books they should read to find out more about specific subjects. I don't have that many audio files anymore. I think I've gotten rid of a lot of that. But yeah, it's mainly the articles there. And you can also find links to the Theology Web Forum where I, where I uh, participate and a few other uh, good websites to check out. Great stuff. Well, thank you ever so much, JP Holding, for joining us on the program. As I said before, it's, it's been fascinating, quite challenging, actually, in a number of ways. And I, I really do like the way that you deal with uncomfortable realities. I mean, throughout the book, you weren't trying to hide things. You know, when somebody had a, a darker side to their nature, you would mention that. And quite genuinely, I did appreciate that book. It was very, very helpful. And I think people will get a lot from it as well, actually. So it's been fascinating speaking to you. Thank you very much indeed for coming on the show. Oh, thank you for having me.